There was a time when God lived amongst his people in a tent. From the Exodus forward, when God led Israel out of Egypt and led them through the wilderness, he had them build a tabernacle, a tent. And he would dwell in this tent, and he would meet with Moses and Aaron in this tent, and he would be worshipped in this tent. And as they progressed through the wilderness from place to place, they would tear down the tabernacle, carry it to the next location. When that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud stopped, they'd rebuild that tent. And then when he moved again, they would tear it down again. And this went on and on throughout Israel's exodus as they were heading towards the promised land. Once they made it to the promised land, God said, I need a house, David. Where is my house? I need you to build me a house. But he would not let David build that house because the scriptures say that David had much blood on his hands. He had shed much blood. And so God decreed that it would be Solomon, David's son, that would build the house of God. And so Solomon was appointed to build, and in 1 Kings, and starting in chapter 6, we get the account of Solomon building the temple of God. And it says, in the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long and 20 cubits wide, And 30 cubits high. And when the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. And all was made of costly stones, cut according to measure. Sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coping. And from the outside to the great court, the foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, ten to twelve feet, gigantic foundational stones. And above were costly stones cut according to measurement. We're given much detail about the building of the temple in the Old Testament. Sometimes it makes for thick reading, right? There's a purpose that God gave us those details. And it is with this background that we come to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we see that Peter's going to encourage us to morning with language about stones. And so turn with me and, and have that background in your mind as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be reading in verses 4 through 10 this morning. And we're going to see that this is where Peter is coming from as he explains to us what it means to be the people of God. And so here's what Peter was inspired to write. As you come to him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a lot there in those six or seven verses. In fact, you see Peter, he gives an analogy of stones, but then he switches and then there's this holy nation royal priesthood analogy. And so we're going to break these apart and we're going to treat them separately in the next two Sundays. And so today we're going to take the first analogy that Peter gives us in his sequence, and that's the analogy of stones. And we're going to see how we are like the stones of the temple that Solomon was called by God to build. So let's jump in in verse 4. Peter says, as you come to him. Now, who is him? Him is immediately referenced prior in verse 3. Indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the Lord. It's not something insignificant here. Peter quoted Isaiah 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And now he's applying Isaiah 34, 8, not to God the Father, but to God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so we have here yet another piece of evidence in the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the God of the Bible. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and present and precious. So we see here in verse 4 that Jesus Christ is called by Peter a living stone. And the focus is that he was rejected by men. And we're going to camp out on this for just a moment. There's, there's four things, there's four observations that we will see from this rejection by men of Jesus Christ. And Peter speaks to it later on down in verse 7. Look with me there. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in verse 4 he says, He's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And you hear echoes from 1 Kings in the building of these chosen precious stones that were cut according to measure. Let's just break this down for, for a minute. Some key words here. Rejected. The rejection of Jesus Christ points us to His crucifixion. Jesus was rejected over and over again throughout his life. He was rejected even when he was born. And his ultimate rejection is what we see on the cross where he is crucified and, and rejected by men thinking they think once and for all. But then we have this cornerstone concept and this living stone truth. Jesus Christ is the stone that was rejected on the cross, but he becomes a cornerstone when he's resurrected. So the rejection is the cross, 
The cornerstone is the resurrection, and he's rejected by men. He is rejected by builders. Who are the builders? The builders, believe it or not, are the religious leaders of Israel. It's not the world. It's it's the religious leaders of Jewish Israel. Peter calls them out when he preaches in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Just listen to this. He says to these leaders of Israel, Rulers of the people and rulers of the elders of Israel, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. They just healed a lame beggar. And it's by Christ's name that he stands before you. And then he says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So what Peter writes in 1 Peter is what Peter preached in Acts chapter 4. You crucified, you rejected this one, Jesus. And he has become a cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men that we might be saved. So the builders are the rulers of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel. They reject Jesus by having him crucified on a cross, but he becomes a cornerstone because God the Father raised him from the dead. Another observation, there's four here of this rejection by men. A second one is this. Peter calls him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's quoting out of the Old Testament. Jesus was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel, the men of Israel that knew their Old Testament Bibles. They knew of a Messiah. And a Messiah is a promised one who will come and will save you. They knew about all of this, but Jesus Christ did not meet up to their mental image of a Messiah. They're picturing a conquering king on a white horse, swinging a sword, throwing a spear, overcoming the Roman Empire that has them suppressed. And they got a Messiah riding on a donkey. Lowly, humble, with 12 vagabonds following with them. So they're rejecting him. He was a stone of stumbling. And in many cases, he was a rock of offense because he claimed himself to be God and the son of God. So he was offensive to these religious leaders. And so they absolutely rejected him. We get this in John chapter one, starting in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, is what John 1 says. The religious leaders of Israel, Jesus, an Israelite, is rejected. Number three, they stumbled because they disobeyed the word. They aren't like what we saw last week. They aren't like newborn infants longing for pure spiritual milk. They disobey the word of God. They rebel against it. And he is an offensive rock and a stumbling 
stoned them because they are not inclined to embrace the word. And number four, Peter writes, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's a big phrase. As they were destined to do. We can't run from phrases like this in the Bible. We've got to strive to understand it. And the only way to understand it is with the Bible. We don't understand it with our feelings and our emotions and our fallen minds. This is a big phrase. And it is a phrase that brings to light yet again, right before our very eyes, a phrase that we commonly say together at church. And that is, God is sovereign and man is responsible. And we are going to unpack it yet again because it has come up in God's Scripture. The Bible consistently, inspired author by inspired author, presents these two truths. God is sovereign and man is responsible. It is on almost every page of the Bible, for sure, in every book of the Bible. The authors never exempt humans from being responsible for their sins of unbelief. The, The authors always credit God for controlling everything that happens in human history. And there's a case in point in Peter's preaching. Back over in Acts chapter 2, he preaches on the day of Pentecost this. This Jesus, he's preaching to religious Jewish people. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who killed Jesus Christ? According to that verse. Did God or did man? Both. God has a definite plan. He had foreknowledge of this event. He orchestrated and ordained it to happen. But you, Peter says, crucified him at the hands of lawless men. God in his sovereignty had a definite plan. Man in his responsibility sinned against God's plan. Observe the audience's reaction to what Peter preached in verse 37 in Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter tells them to repent of this sin and be baptized. And in so doing, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter credits God for delivering Jesus over. But Peter does not exempt the men that have Jesus crucified. Credit to God, blame to men. One event, crucifixion, rejection by men. He calls for repentance for their responsibility. Man is responsible. The whole Bible tells us man is responsible. When we sin, we sin willingly. It's our fallenness that we sin. And yet the scriptures tell us that God sovereignly controls all things. I will be the first to admit to you, the Bible does not tell us how to reconcile these two truths. The the Bible does not tell us how these two things can exist philosophically in our human mind. It doesn't tell us how that does. And so we live with some tension with these two truths. God is sovereign and man is responsible. But they are replete throughout all of the scriptures. And so what are we to do with verses like, as they were destined to do? We humbly 
come before God and we approach his Bible with humility and reverence and we say, it says this and it says that, and so both must be true somehow. Somehow. We cannot err on the side of God is all sovereign and he figured it all out and so we just need to sit back and take it. Can't err on that side. Nor can we err on the other side. You just got to choose right and you just got to do it right and you just got to do... No. It's both. And I cannot reconcile the two beyond what Scripture tells us. And the Scriptures do not tell us, here's how A and B equals C. We can't comprehend this. But we can't deny either one of these truths throughout the Scriptures. We can't. Because to do so would mean we need to cut some of the Bible out and throw it away. I'm not going to be about that. So there's four things that we observe about these men that reject God. I I just want to say we we need to understand that the God of the Bible is not a, a giant chess player. God does not play chess with man. Jesus was not crucified, and so God says, Ooh, I didn't expect that. I'm going to have to counter move. Now, what do I want to do to overcome that? That's not what's going on. God is sovereignly decreeing things to happen. Man is in some way responsible for these things to happen. And it's all done according to God's will for God's glory. And so why would Peter put this phrase here? Why why is Peter even talking about some were destined to do this? Why? And I think the answer is to encourage us. You've got to remember... Peter is writing to exiles, people that are living in the world. They profess Jesus Christ as Lord, and the world doesn't know what to do with them. And when they do figure out what to do with them, it isn't nice. It isn't loving, and it isn't encouraging. These exiled Christians, you and I as exiles, our citizenship belongs in heaven. But for a little while, we experience light and momentary suffering on this earth, and I think Peter says all about this rejection of Christ is, and they were destined to do this. I think he's telling us this to give us assurance that God is sovereign over evil. And evil does not happen to us in this world without God sovereignly reigning over it and for some reason allowing it. Go to Job chapter 1 and 2, and you'll see that God allowed evil to happen to Job, but he protected Job ultimately from it. And that's going on with exiles. Job was an exile. He was a righteous man. No more more man on earth was more righteous than Job himself. And so Peter gives us these words to encourage us, because the God who reigned and had a definite plan for Christ to be crucified is the same God who is reigning sovereignly over our lives and allowing things to happen to us for some reason that will bring glory to Him. This summer at sports camp, we taught our children, some 175 or so kids, about the life of Joseph. And in Genesis 50-20... The brothers of Joseph are terrified because their dad's died and they think Joseph's now going to throw down on them for what they did to him, selling him into slavery. And Joseph goes to them and he says, Hey guys, as for you, you meant evil towards me, but God meant it for good. 
ah, here we are again. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Not God turned it into good. God meant it for good. It's not, you wanted me to have lemons, but God made it into lemonade. No, no. What you designed for evil, selling me, throwing me into the pit, selling me into slavery, God designed for good. And he goes on to say, so that a multitude of people might be saved and preserved through the famine. So who who did Joseph wrong? Who sold Joseph into slavery? Did God or did man? Yes. God was sovereign and man was responsible and God did it why so that Israel would be preserved through seven years of famine why did God have Jesus crucified on a cross oh so that he would rise on the third day and he would become as we will see in a moment a cornerstone so that we might be saved for eternity what man meant for evil on that cross God meant for good How do those run parallel? Don't know. Let's trust the Lord with that one. And there will be a day that we will no longer see dimly through a mirror. We will see vividly clearly. And all will be understood. So, the second thing I want to say before we move to a a key point, the the, the heart of our sermon, although these are very important truths, we, we see that Jesus here is rejected by men. But we see also that he is chosen and precious in the sight of God. That's what verse 4 says. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So man had a perspective on Jesus Christ when he walked on this earth. Man to this very day has a perspective on Jesus Christ. There are men to this very day that reject him. But all throughout, all of eternity, before the world was even found it. God chose Jesus Christ and saw him as precious and priceless. Peter speaks to this also in verse six. Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So we see twice in this text that Jesus is chosen by God and precious by God. And this is throughout all of the scriptures, what we see about God, the Father, and his relationship to God, the Son. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. You hear it? Chosen and precious. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. First Peter, just up in verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for your sake. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Only? Come on, that's precious. If you have one and you give it away, that's generous. And he cherished Jesus. And he gave him away. Matthew 3, 17, right? He's baptized and when he comes out of the water, God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Says the same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he says, listen to him. 
So Jesus is rejected by men. The builders who rejected him were the religious leaders of Israel. But God makes him a cornerstone by raising him from the dead on the third day. And he's going to do something. He is going to do something with this cornerstone. You don't lay a cornerstone there and go, that's a great cornerstone. Glad it's there and done with it. There's something that's going to be done with this cornerstone. And that's where we turn the corner now and we look at the second point of this morning's text. And that is that you and I are called in this scripture, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, you and I are called living stones. How do we become living stones? Look at this, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. How do we become living stones? By believing in the living stone. The cornerstone. Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we will be rejected by men. But we too are chosen and precious by God. And we are being built up, Peter says, as a spiritual house. Now, this is a reference to the church universal, the worldwide church. There are Christians today that are worshiping a risen Jesus Christ in South Korea and in Uganda, in Papua New Guinea, in Stephenville, Texas. There is a universal church, the body of Christ, the believers on earth that believe in him. That is the church. And they're all, like us, exiles in a world that they don't belong in long term. We can also, though, apply this to the local church. We can also apply this to Rocky Point Baptist Church. I think it's faithful to look at this from both perspectives. Universal Worldwide Church, local Stephenville Rocky Point Baptist Church. And Peter is very clear. You yourselves, like living stones... You are being built up as a spiritual house. Who is the builder? It's not the pastor. It's not the individuals. God is the builder of his church. Peter, in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Oh, some say Moses, some say Elijah, some say the prophet. But who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and bone didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And then he goes on to say, and I tell you, Peter, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Peter is not building the church. And by the way, Peter is not the rock that the church is built on. Jesus Christ is the rock. He's the cornerstone. The rock that Jesus is talking about when he talks to Peter is Peter's profession that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. So this this profession is what I, Jesus says, will build my church upon. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's language that exiles want to hear, didn't it? You want to hear the church of Jesus Christ will not be overcome by the gates of hell? Sometimes it feels like hell's beating on you. Won't be. Because Christ built and Christ protects. Paul goes further with this analogy. And I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We need to see this. Paul was inspired by the same Holy Spirit that Peter was inspired by. 
And in Ephesians 2.19, he's going to talk to us about a cornerstone and some building that's going on. So Ephesians 2.19 through 22. Peter writes, and this is speaking to the church in Corinth. This is not to individual people, okay? This is a church body he's speaking to. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Remember, Peter's told us we're being built into a spiritual house. Verse 20, this household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's some key words in that text of Scripture that I want you to note. I I think you might underline these or circle them. Number one, we have cornerstone at the end of verse 20. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Sounds exactly like what Peter's writing. Sounds exactly what Peter preached in Acts 4. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this local church that Paul is writing to in Ephesus. I think I said Corinth a minute ago. Ephesus. Second, back at the beginning of verse 20, there's a foundation What is the foundation of the church in Corinth? It is the apostles and the prophets. Wow, wait a minute. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Cornerstone is critical. You got to set that. It's going to bear a lot of weight. And that cornerstone is going to set the direction for every other wall and every other angle in this building. Everything comes from a cornerstone, but you've got to have a solid foundation. And the Ephesian church is established on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This, the word of God. And then look in verse 21, in whom the whole structure, underline or circle structure in your Bibles, that's you and me. That's you and me. We're joined together and we grow into a holy temple in the Lord. And we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. So this morning I say to you, as a church body, we are declaring when we gather together that we are founded upon one cornerstone. And that cornerstone has a name. That cornerstone is a person who lives. He's a living stone. And his name is Jesus Christ. So Rocky Point Baptist Church stands on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ first and foremost, always and forever. And then we have a foundation that has been conjoined to that cornerstone. And that foundation is the Word of God, the writings of the inspired apostles and prophets. And so everything that we do as a church permeates, comes forth from here. And then in so doing, when we have that right, 
We as professors in Jesus Christ, professing with our mouth that he is Lord, we are being assembled by God into a structure that's founded on the apostles and the prophets that's linked to a cornerstone that is perfect and massive and will not falter ever. I want you to remember what I read to you in the introduction from 1 Kings about the building of the temple. The stones that were used, the writer of Kings says, all these stones were made of costly stones, cut according to measure. Every stone that has gone into building the universal church and the local church is costly. How costly was it for God to cut the cornerstone? How costly. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son. It cost God a lot to set a cornerstone named Jesus. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Those are words of great cost. Scriptures say we were ransomed. We were bought with something that's not perishable, but like silver and gold, but something imperishable. The blood of Jesus Christ without blemish, without spot. It was perfect, pure, sin-free blood. And that's what God cut to lay for a cornerstone for his church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. How costly was it to cut the stones for the foundation that co-joined to the cornerstone? The writers of this Bible were persecuted to the death. Read Jeremiah and see how much it cost for us to get the prophet Jeremiah in this book that we are founded upon. He gave up much. How about Hosea and what God called Hosea to do so that we might have Hosea's testimony to build a church upon? Matthew martyred. Paul beheaded. Peter crucified upside down. And on and on and on. These foundational stones that God built his church upon, just like the cornerstone, were sacrificed. They were cut and hewn in a quarry by God himself. And then how about you? If you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, I'm going to tell you that you are costly to him. You and I have sinned against him. And it cost God, his son, to overcome our sin. So we're back to Jesus again, aren't we? It cost God. God had to have a death in your place and in my place so that we might be a stone that can be put into the church building, the spiritual house of God. You were bought with a price, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, and he's talking about you as an individual. You were bought with a price. You are not your own, it says. And so every stone that goes into the spiritual house of God, the temple, the body of Christ, the believers around the world. Every stone is precious and costly and measured precisely and cut in the quarry and brought to the building and inserted 
in its place. Every single stone, from the cornerstone to the coping at the top, the dental molding around the temple. Every stone. God is a meticulous master builder. And it cost God much to build his temple. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones of 12 to 15 feet, and above were costly stones cut according to measurement. God had a definite plan long ago. And he built the blueprints for it. And he knew the cornerstone and the foundation and the individual stones that would go into building. Yes, his global church and yes, his local church in millions of iterations around the globe. There's local churches to the millions, praise God, around the globe. And to the almost hundreds in Erath County. And each church... God has uniquely cut stones and uniquely fitted people into those. And he's the builder. He is the builder. He will build his churches. And he, he will cause his churches to be raised up according to the exact blueprint that he would have for them. So here's how we end with this this morning. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes to us. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Now, be, let's be careful. In 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking to individual Christians one-on-one. In 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that you, church, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And so we, as believers in Jesus Christ, are to do what Peter told us in chapter 1, starting in verse 22. We are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And we are to put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. And we are to be contributors where God has inserted us into the structure of his local manifestation of his church. And we are to do this so that, Peter says, we will grow into salvation. So we are the temple of the holy and living God. And we're a local manifestation of that, and we have a larger temple that we're a part of around the world. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus Christ... This is all Greek to you. What's this talk about a building and a cornerstone and stones and foundations? And how does that apply to a church? Well, I want to say to the person that's hearing this this morning that maybe is not a believer. I believe that you may be in the quarry. Outside of the temple, sure. But God goes out to the quarry. And and in 1 Kings... There was no tools that were used within the temple to cut stones. It was done out in the quarry. 
And I pray that God is cutting on you. I pray that you would make room in your philosophy, in your existence, that God might be cutting you to be a perfect stone that he might plug into a church structure somewhere. It does not have to be here. But you have to be plugged into God's temple so that he can dwell in you and he can be glorified by your representation of him in the world. That's what he made you for. And so maybe today is just a little bit more time out in the quarry for you where you're getting cut a little bit more and shaped. And I pray that you would consider that everybody in this room at one point was out in the quarry. We were not born into the walls of the temple. We were all born out in the quarry, and God went out in the quarry and cut us all and brought us in and plugged us into his structure. And that might just be beginning to happen with some of you. That's how it works. That's how God builds his church. And so I ask that you not check out on a sermon like this, because it is largely to Christians saying, here's how we are to exist as the household of God. But I pray that you would also say, boy, I would like to be a part of that house. God, would you cut on me so that I might fit? And here's all that's going to take place in the cutting, by the way. You're not looking for perfection. None of us here are perfect. Oh, none of us are here perfect. What God is going to cut off of you is your rejection of Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, I want to, I want to cut that off. I don't want you to reject him anymore. I need you to embrace my son, because I gave him for you. That in believing in him, you would become a part of my spiritual household. On earth, yes. And in heaven for all of eternity, certainly. So God's only going to ask you to repent of your rejection of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, then he's going to call you to obey his commands. And we're all in that process of obeying his commands. That's where everybody in this room sits right now. And we are being further refined, I think, by God. Because we don't obey every command all the time. We struggle with this. And I'm inviting you this morning to join us in that struggle. By professing Christ as Lord and no longer rejecting him for who he truly and really is. And with that, let's pray. Father, you have given us some insight this morning through your word that you have great intentions for us. It started with a great intention for your son, Jesus Christ, that he would be, yes, rejected and, yes, resurrected so that he could be a cornerstone to a magnificent dwelling place for you. You've told us this morning, Father, that the foundation of your church tied to this cornerstone is your word. And we, we profess to you faithfulness and obedience to your word. And then you've shown us, Lord, that you use us to do incredible things like build a spiritual house for you to dwell in so that you might be glorified and worshipped. Father, I pray this morning that those of us who are members of your church, universal and local, that we would fulfill our function well in the structure. And I pray for those here, Father, that may not be yet stones in the structure of your temple, that 
that by hearing the proclamation of the apostles and the prophets and by being shown the cornerstone Jesus Christ, they too might become a precious stone that has been refined and cut for a purpose of fitting in to your great church. Father, we're comforted of the fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Remind us of that and help us to fulfill our function in such a way that your declaration will remain true for all time. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.